0: Part 1 Chapter 28 of The Daisy Chain This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona The Daisy Chain by Charlotte Mary Young Sail forth into the sea, thou ship, through breeze and cloud, right onward steer. The moistened eye, the trembling lip, are not the signs of doubt or fear? Longfellow. Tranquility only lasted until Mr. Ernescliffe found it necessary to understand on what terms he was to stand. Everyone was tender of conscience, anxious to do right, and desirous to yield to the opinion that nobody could or would give. While Allan begged for a positive engagement, Margaret scrupled to exchange promises that she might never be able to fulfill, and both agreed to leave all to her father, who, in every way, ought to have the best ability to judge whether there was unreasonable presumption in such a betrothal. But this very ability only served to perplex the poor doctor more and more. It is far easier for a man to decide when he sees only one bearing of a case than when, like Dr. May, he not only sees them but is rent by them in his inmost heart sympathizing in turn with each lover bitterly accusing his own carelessness as the cause of all their troubles his doubts contending with his hopes his conviction clashing with sir matthew fleet's opinion his conscientious sincerity and delicacy conflicting with his affection and eagerness he was perfectly incapable of coming to a decision and suffered so cruelly that Margaret was doubly distressed for his sake, and Alan felt himself guilty of having rendered everybody miserable. Dr. May could not conceal his trouble, and rendered Ethel almost as unhappy as himself, after each conversation with her, though her hopes usually sprang up again, and she had a happy conviction that this was only the second volume of the novel. Laura was not often called into his counsels. Confidence never came spontaneously from Dr. May to her. There was something that did not draw it forth towards her, whether it resided in that half-sarcastic corner of her steady blue eye, or in the grave common sense of her gentle voice. Her view of the case was known to be that there was no need for such perplexity. Why should not Alan be the best judge of his own happiness? If Margaret were to be delicate for life, it would be better to have such a home to look to. And she soothed and comforted Margaret, and talked in a strain of unmixed hope and anticipation that often drew a smile from her sister, though she feared to trust to it. Flora's tact and consideration in keeping the children away when the lovers could best be alone, and letting them in when the discussion was becoming useless and harassing, her cheerful smiles, her evening music that covered all sounds, her removal of all extra annoyances, were invaluable, and margaret appreciated them as indeed flora took care that she should margaret begged to know her eldest brother's judgment but had great difficulty in dragging it out diffidently as it was proposed it was clear and decided he thought that his father had better send sir matthew fleet a statement of margaret's present condition and abide by his answer as to whether her progress warranted the hope of her restoration never was richard more surprised than by the gratitude with which his suggestion was hailed simple as it was so that it seemed obvious that others should have already thought of it after the tossings of uncertainty it was a positive relief to refer the question to some external voice and only ethel and norman expressed strong dislike to sir matthew becoming the arbiter of margaret's fate and were scarcely pacified by dr may's assurance that he had not revealed the occasion of his inquiry the letter was sent and repose returned but hearts beat high on the morning when the answer was expected dr may watched the moment when his daughter was alone carried the letter to her and kissing her said with an oppressed voice i give you joy my dear she read with suspended breath and palpitating heart sir matthew thought her improvement sure though slow and had barely a doubt that in a year she would have regained her full strength and activity. "'You will show it to Alan,' said Dr. May, as Margaret lifted her eyes to his face inquiringly. "'Will not you?' she said. "'I cannot,' he answered. "'I wish I was more helpful to you, my child,' he added wistfully. "'But you will rest on him and be happy together while he stays, will you not?' "'Indeed I will, dear Papa.' Mr. Ernescliffe was with her as the doctor quitted her. She held the letter to him, but, she said slowly, I see that Papa does not believe it. You promise to abide by it, he exclaimed, between entreaty and authority. I do, if you choose so to risk your hopes. But, cried he, as he glanced hastily over the letter, there can be no doubt. These words are as certain as language can make them. Why will you not trust them? I see that Papa does not despondency and self-reproach made him morbidly anxious believe so my margaret you know he is no surgeon his education included that line said margaret i believe he has all but the manual dexterity however i would fain have faith in sir matthew she added smiling and perhaps i am only swayed by the habit of thinking that papa must know best he does in different cases but it is an old axiom that a medical man should not prescribe for his own family, above all, in such a case where it is but reasonable to believe an unprejudiced stranger who alone is cool enough to be relied on. I absolutely depend on him. Margaret absolutely depended on the bright, cheerful look of conviction. Yes, she said, we will try to make Papa take pleasure in the prospect. Perhaps I could do more if I made the attempt." I am sure you could, if you would let me give you more support, if I were but going to remain with you. Don't let us be discontented, said Margaret, smiling, when so much more has been granted than I dare to hope. Be it as it may, let us be happy in what we have. It makes you happy, said he, archly reading her face to draw out the avowal, but he only made her hide it with a mute caress of the hand that held hers. She was glad enough to rest in the present, Now that everything concurred to satisfy her conscience in so doing, and come what might, the days now spent together would be a possession of joy for ever. Captain Gordon contrived to afford his lieutenant another fortnight's leave, perhaps because he was in dread of losing him altogether, for Alan had some doubts, and many longings to remain. Had it been possible to marry at once, he would have quitted the navy immediately, and he would have given worlds to linger beside Margaret's couch and claim her the first moment possible, believing his care more availing than all. He was, however, so pledged to Captain Gordon that, without strong cause, he would not have been justified in withdrawing. Besides, Harry was under his charge, and Dr. May and Margaret both thought, with the Captain, that an active life would be a better occupation for him than watching her. He would never be able to settle down at his new home comfortably without her, and he would be more in the way of duty while pursuing his profession, so Margaret nerved herself against using her influence to detain him, and he thanked her for it. Though hope and affection could not at once repair an injured spine, they had wonderful powers in inciting Margaret to new efforts. Alan was as tender and ready of hand as Richard, and more clever and enterprising, and her unfailing trust in him prevented all alarms and misgivings, so that wonders were effected, and her father beheld her standing with so little support looking so healthful and so blithe that his forebodings melted away and he talked joyously of the future the great achievement was taking her round the garden she could not bear the motion of wheels but Alan adopted the hammock principle and with the aid of richard and his crony the carpenter produced a machine in which no other power on earth could have prevailed on her to trust herself but in which she was carried round the garden so successfully that there was even a talk of next Sunday and of the Minster. It was safely accomplished, and tired as she was, Margaret felt, as she whispered to Alan, that he had now crowned all the joy that he had brought to her. Ethel used to watch them and think how beautiful their countenances were, and talk them over with her father, who was quite happy about them now she gave assistance which alan never once called unhandy to all his contrivances and often floundered in upon his conferences with margaret in a way that would have been very provoking if she had not always blushed and looked so excessively discomfited and they had only to laugh and reassure her alan was struck by finding that the casual words spoken on the way from cocksmoor had been so strenuously acted on and he brought on himself a whole torrent of ethel's confused narratives which richard and flora would fain have checked but margaret let them continue as she saw him a willing listener and was grateful to him for comprehending the ardent girl he declared himself to have a share in the matter reminding ethel of her appeal to him to bind himself to the service of cocksmoor he sent a sovereign at once to aid in the case of the sudden death of a pig and when securely established in his brotherly right, he begged Ethel to let him know what would help her most. She stood coloring, twisting her hands, and wondering what to say, whereupon he relieved her by a proposal to leave an order for ten pounds to be yearly paid into her hands as a fixed income for her school. A thousand a year could hardly have been so much to Ethel. "'Thank you! Oh, this is charming! We could set up a regular school!' "'Chera Elwood is the very woman. "'Alan, you have made our fortune. "'Oh, Margaret, Margaret, "'I must go and tell Richie and Mary. "'This is the first real step to our church and all.' "'May I do it?' said Alan, turning to Margaret, "'as Ethel frantically burst out of the room. "'Perhaps I should have asked leave?' "'I was going to thank you,' said Margaret. "'It is the very kindest thing you could have done by dear Ethel. "'The greatest comfort to us.' She will be at peace now, when anything hinders her from going to Coxmoor. I wonder, said Alan, musing, whether we shall ever be able to help her more substantially. I cannot do anything hastily, for, you know, Maplewood is still in the hands of the executors, and I cannot tell what claims there may be upon me. But by and by, when I return, if I find no other pressing duty, might not a church at Cocksmoor be a thank-offering for all I have found here? oh alan what a joy it would be it is a long way off he said sadly and perhaps her force of perseverance will have prevailed alone i suppose i must not tell her even as a vision it is too uncertain i do not know the wants of the maplewood people and i must provide for hector i would not let these vague dreams interfere with her resolute work but margaret what a vision it is i can see you laying the first stone on that fine heathy brow "'Oh, your godchild should lay the first stone. "'She shall, and you shall lead her. "'And there shall be Ethel's sharp face "'full of indescribable things "'as she marshals her children. "'And Richard shall be curate, "'and read in his steady soft tone, "'and your father shall look sunny "'with his boys around him. "'And you?' "'Oh, Alan,' said Margaret, "'who had been listening with a smile, "'it is indeed a long way off. "'I shall look to it as a haven "'where I would be,' said the sailor. They often spoke together of this scheme, ever decking it in brighter colors. The topic seemed to suit them better than their own future, for there was no dwelling on that without an occasional misgiving, and the more glad the anticipation, the deeper the sigh that followed on Margaret's part, till Mr. Ernescliffe followed her lead, and they seldom spoke of these uncertainties, but outwardly smiled over the present, inwardly dwelt on the truly certain hopes. There were readings shared together— made more precious than all by the conversations that ensued. The hour for parting came at last. Ethel never knew what passed in the drawing-room, whence everyone was carefully excluded. Dr. May wandered about, keeping guard over the door, and watching the clock, till, at the last moment, he knocked and called in a trembling voice, "'Earnscliff! Alan! It is past the quarter! You must not stay!' The other farewells were hurried. Allen seemed voiceless only nodding in reply to mary's vociferous messages to harry and huskily whispering to ethel good luck to cocksmoor the next moment the door had shut on him and dr may and flora had gone to her sister whom she found not tearful but begging to be left alone when they saw her again she was cheerful she kept up her composure and animation without flagging nor did she discontinue her new exertions but seemed decidedly the happier for all that had passed. Letters came every day for her, and presents to everyone. Ethel had a gold chain and eyeglass, which, it was hoped, might cure her of frowning and stooping, though her various ways of dangling her new possession caused her to be so much teased by Flora and Norman, that, but for regard to Margaret's feelings, she would not have worn it for three days. To Mary was sent a daguerreotype of Harry, her glory and delight say who would that it had pig's eyes a savage frown a pudding chin there were his own tight rings of hair his gold banded cap his bright buttons how could she prize it enough she exhibited it to the little ones ten times a day she kissed it night and morning and registered her vow always to sleep with it under her pillow in a letter of thanks, which Margaret defended and dispatched, in spite of Miss Winters's horrors at its disregard of orthography. It was nearly the last letter before the Alcestis was heard of at Spithead. Then she sailed, she sent in her letters to Plymouth, and her final greetings by a Falmouth cutter, poor Harry's wild scrawl and pencil looking very seasick. Dear Papa and all, good-bye. We are out of sight of land. Three years— and keep up a good heart, I shall soon be all right, your H. May. It was enclosed in Mr. Ernescliffe's envelope, and with it came tidings that Harry's brave spirit was not failing, even under untoward circumstances, but he had struggled on deck, and tried to write, when all his contemporaries had given in. In fact, he was a fine fellow, everyone liked him, and Captain Gordon, though charry of commendation, had held them up to the other youngsters as an example of knowing what a sailor was meant to be like. Margaret smiled and cried over the news when she imparted it, but all serenely, and though she was glad to be alone, and wrote journals for Alan, when she could not send letters, she exerted herself to be the same sister as usual to the rest of the household, and not give way to her wandering musings. From one subject her attention never strayed ethel had never found any lack of sympathy in her for her cocksmoor pursuits but the change now showed that, where once Margaret had been interested merely as a kind sister, she now had a personal concern, and she threw herself into all that related to it as her own chief interest and pursuit, becoming the foremost in devising plans and arranging the best means of using mr Ernescliffe's benefaction. The Elwood family had grown in the good opinion of the Mays. Charity had hobbled to church, leaning on her father's arm, and being invited to dinner in the kitchen, the acquaintance had been improved, and Nurse herself had pronounced her such a tidy, good sort of body, that it was a pity she had met with such a misfortune. If Miss Ethel brought in nothing but the like of her, they should be welcome. Poor thing! How tired she was! Nurse's opinions were apt to be sagacious, especially when in the face of her prejudices, and this gave Margaret confidence. Cherry proved to have been carefully taught by a good clergyman and his wife, and to be of very different stamp from the persons to whom the girls were accustomed. They were charmed with her, and eagerly offered to supply her with books, respecting her the more when they found that Mr. Hazelwood had already led her their chief favorites. Other and greater needs they had no power to fill up. It is so long without the church bells you see, miss, said Mrs. Elwood, Our tower had a real fine peel, and my man was one of the ringers. I seems quite lost without them, and there was Cherry when almost every day with the children. "'Every day?' cried Mary, looking at her with respect. "'It was so near,' said Cherry. "'I could get there easy, and I got used to it when I was at school.' "'Did it not take up a great deal of time?' said Ethel. "'Why, you see, ma'am, it came morning and night, out of working times, and I can't be stirring much.' Then you miss it sadly said ethel. Yes, ma'am. It made the day go on well-like and settled a body's mind when I fretted for what could not be helped. But I try not to fret after it now, and mr Hazelwood said if I did my best wherever I was, the Lord would still join our prayers together. Mr Hazelwood was recollected by mr Wilmot as an old college friend, and a correspondence with him fully confirmed the favourable estimate of the Elwoods and was decisive in determining that the day-school, with Allen's ten pounds as salary, and a penny a week from each child, should be offered to Cherry. Mr. Hazelwood answered for her sound excellence and aptitude for managing little children, though he did not promise genius, such as should fulfill the requirements of modern days. With these Coxmore could dispense at present. Cherry was humbly gratified, and her parents delighted with the honor and profit, there was a kitchen which afforded great facilities, and Richard and his carpenter managed the fitting to admiration. Margaret devised all manner of useful arrangements, settled matters with great earnestness, saw Cherry frequently, discussed plans, and learned the history and character of each child as thoroughly as Ethel herself. Mr. Ramston himself came to the opening of the school, and said so much of the obligations of Cocksmoor to the young ladies that Ethel would not have known which way to look, if Flora had not kindly borne the brunt of his compliments. Everyone was pleased, except Mrs. Green, who took upon herself to set about various malicious reports of Cherry Elwood, but nobody cared for them, except Mrs. Elwood, who flew into such passions, that Ethel was quite disappointed in her, though not in Cherry, who meekly tried to silence her mother, begged the young ladies not to be vexed, and showed a quiet dignity that soon made the shafts of slander fall inoffensively. All went well. There was a school instead of a hubbub, clean faces instead of dirty, shining hair instead of wild elf-locks, orderly children instead of little savages. The order and obedience that Ethel could not gain in six months seemed impressed in six days by Cherry. The neat work made her popular with the mothers, her firm gentleness won the hearts of the children, and the kitchen was filled not only with boys and girls from the quarry but with some little ones from outlying cottages of fort and abbotstoke and there was even a smart little farmer who had been unbearable at home margaret's unsuccessful bath-chair was lent to cherry and in it her scholars drew her to stoneborough every sunday and slowly began to redeem their character with the ladies who began to lose the habit of shrinking out of their way the stoneborough children did so instead and flora and ethel were always bringing home stories of injustice to their scholars fancied a real and of triumphs in their having excelled any national school girl the most stupid children at cocksmoor always seemed to them wise in comparison with the stoneborough girls and the sunday school might have become to ethel a school of rivalry if richard had not opened her eyes by a quiet observation that the town girls seemed to fare as ill with her as the cocksmoor girls did with the town ladies then she caught herself up tried to be candid and found that she was not always impartial in her judgments why would competition mingle even in the best attempts cherry did not so bring forward her scholars that ethel could have many triumphs of this dangerous kind indeed ethel was often vexed with her for though she taught needlework admirably and enforced correct reading and reverent repetition her strong provincial dialect was a stumbling block she could not put questions without book and nothing would teach her ethel's rational system of arithmetic that she was a capital dame and made the children very good was allowed but now and then when mortified by hearing what was done at stoneborough fold or abbotstoke ethel would make vigorous efforts which resulted only in her coming home fuming at cherry's outrageous dullness these railings always hurt margaret who had made cherry almost into a friend and generally liked to have a visit from her during the sunday when she always dined with the servants then school questions cocksmoor news and the tempers of the children were talked over and cherry was now and then drawn into home reminiscences and descriptions of the ways of her former school there was no fear of spoiling her notice from her superiors was natural to her and she had the ladylikeness of womanly goodness so as never to go beyond her own place she had had many trials too and margaret learned the true history of them as she won cherry's confidence and entered into them feeling their likeness yet dissimilarity to her own cherry had been a brisk happy girl in a good place resting in one of the long engagements that often extend over half the life of a servant enjoying the nod of her baker as he left his bread and her walk from church with him on alternate sundays But poor Cherry had been exposed to the perils of window-cleaning, and, after a frightful fall, had wakened to find herself in a hospital, and her severe sufferings had left her a cripple for life. And the baker had not been an Alan Ernescliffe. She did not complain of him. He had come to see her, and had been much grieved, but she had told him she could never be a useful wife. And, before she had used her crutches, he was married to her pretty fellow-servant. Cherry spoke very simply. She hoped it was better for Long, and believed Susan would make him a good wife. Ethel would have thought she did not feel, but Margaret knew better. She stroked the thin, slight fingers and gently said, Poor Cherry. And Cherry wiped away a tear and said, Yes, ma'am, thank you. It is best for him. I should not have wished him to grieve for what cannot be helped. Resignation is the great comfort. Yes, ma'am, I have a great deal to be thankful for. I don't blame no one, but I do see how some, as are married, seem to get to think more of this world, and now and then I fancy I can see how it is best for me as it is. Margaret sighed as she remembered certain thoughts before Allan's return. Then, ma'am, there has been such goodness. I did vex at being a poor helpless thing, nothing but a burden on father, and when we had to go from home, and Mr. and Mrs. Hazelwood and all, I can't tell you how bad it was, ma'am, "'Then you are comforted now?' "'Yes, ma'am,' said Cherry, brightening. "'It seems as if he had given me something to do, "'and there are you and Mr. Richard and Miss Ethel to help. "'I should like, please God, "'to be of some good to those poor children.' "'I am sure you will, Cherry. "'I wish I could do as much.' "'Cherry's tears had come again. "'Ah, ma'am, you—' "'And she stopped short and rose to depart. "'Margaret held out her hand to wish her good-bye.' "'Please, Miss, I was thinking how Mr. Hazelwood said "'that God fits our place to us, and us to our place. "'Thank you, Cherry. "'You are leaving me something to remember.' "'And Margaret lay questioning with herself "'whether the schoolmistress had not been the most self-denying of the two, "'but withal, gazing on the hoop of pearls "'which Alan had chosen as the ring of betrothal. "'The pearl of great price,' murmured she to herself. "'If we hold that, the rest will soon matter but little.' it remaineth that both they that have wives be as they that have none, and they that weave as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. If ever Alan and I have a home together upon earth, may all too confident joy be tempered by the fears that we have begun with. I hope this probation may make me less likely to be taken up with the cares and pleasures of his position than it might have been last year. He is one who can best help the mind to go truly upward. But, oh, that voyage! End of Part 1, Chapter 28 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona